through Ephesians. Um, Ephesians, what a powerful, powerful book. It's divided up, as we've been talking about, into these two sections. The first half of it talks about our position, who we are in Christ as a result of our faith in Him. But the second half of the book deals with um, our practical, like how we live that faith out. It's kind of like this. Because of our position in Christ, all right, this is how we should live. Okay, But we get it backwards a lot of times. We, as humans, we try to earn our way into God's graces, into God's goodness, which we're going to talk heavily about today. But the reality is we can't earn our way there. He makes us his sons through our faith in him. But then he, we have, because of the position, we have a, an amazing responsibility to live up to as sons and daughters of the Most High. So let's get our Bibles and just go ahead and go to chapter 2. As you're turning to chapter 2, I just want to share a little bit of, of some things that God has done, certainly in, in my life as well. Growing up, um, I, I grew up you know, playing sports. Uh, I grew up, of course, going to school. I grew up in, in a good home. Um, but in most of those scenarios, my approval was based upon my performance, okay? Uh, in sports, for example, uh, from little league all the way up, the better I performed, the more playing time I got. And, I, and that's you know, probably the way it should be. It's sports, right? In school, the better I performed, the better grades I got. So I wanted to perform really well to get approved, approval by the teachers, by other students, etc. When I got into college, uh, the more weight I lifted in the weight room, the more people looked at me, teammates, and like, wow, you know, you're so whatever, you know. And so it was feeding this, this performance-based approval kind of concept. As a matter of fact, in college, um, my senior year, I'd started off, off the first three years, I got my senior year, and uh, I got benched because I played football at Liberty University. I got benched because my performance wasn't good enough. And the coach came to me and said, well, you're not a very good football player this year for some reason. So because your performance is no good, I do not approve you to be on the starting lineup. And that hurt, that it should hurt, because my, my approval had been and forever was based upon my performance, and I was letting my coach down, I was letting my teammates down, I was letting myself down, my friends. Now this is completely legit and understandable in sports, and I'm not saying that in college sports or any sports that you, know, you get equal playing time just to build up self-esteem, because that could actually be a negative thing in the long run. You know? But then I'm not suggesting that a, a department uh, at, at corporate America, you know, like every single department gets raises, even the lazy departments, just because to build up self-esteem and morale. I'm not suggesting that. There's legitimate behind this. But sometimes, it can seem that life is nothing more than finding a way to perform well in front of the right person so that they will give you the approval necessary so that you can get what you want. A raise, a promotion, a wife, whatever it is. It seems sometimes life is nothing more than performing well in front of the right person so that you can get what you're after. You know, I, I think... I think we all, in a certain sense, struggle with 
performance-based approval. We all struggle with this. Uh, we, we all have this inner voice inside of us to one degree or another that causes us to think that our acceptance is based upon our performance, our acceptance at work. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, so surely this doesn't apply to me, but you know what? If we don't, if I just show up on Sundays with nothing much prepared, I haven't performed during the week in preparing, I haven't built networks, I haven't met with people, you know, and I just show up to just show up and say, hey, look at what I've got to say today. Like, that performance is low. You know, nobody's going to come, and they shouldn't come. So even as a pastor, there's a performance and approval kind of connection. But certainly at your work, you realize that the stress that teenagers in high school are under, if they really take school seriously, teenagers are driven to perform on their SOLs, their ACTs, their SATs, their ETCs. You'll get that one in a second, etc. But they'll get they're driven to do all this so that they can get approved in the college that they're seeking. Well, once they get into college, college students are driven to perform well on their finals, their exams, their papers, just to get into the grad school that they want to get into. And then once they get into grad school, grad students are driven to perform well uh, to, on their thesis, on their research, and all that stuff, so that they can get the post-grad thing that they're seeking. And then once you land a job, whether it's the job you want or it's just a job to have, your life is focused on outperforming the next person because they could easily get your job. And there's all the students and, and, and graduates entering the workforce every single year that could have a better resume or more letters after their name that you're fighting against to outperform so that you get what you want. Performance-based approval. Our performance certainly dictates our boss's approval. It dictates at times our parents' approval. It dictates our co-workers' approval, our employees' approval. Sometimes it even dictates our spouse's approval of us. So certainly our performance would dictate God's approval. If it dictates our boss's approval, shouldn't it dictate God's approval of us as well? And, and here's the deal. Here's the reality of where Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is coming. I really think that God knew that we would struggle with this issue of performance-based approval. I really believe that God knew that we could not separate what happens here on earth and fallen, in fallen world with how God views us. So I think that God in his infinite wisdom, he makes it really clear to us how this works right here in Ephesians chapter 2. So here's, if, if we could walk out of the room with this one simple truth ringing in our ears, this is what I want us to say, and it'll be up on the screen later on. But doing good is good. Performing well, that is good. But without Jesus, no one is good. Doing good is good. But without Jesus, no one is good. So let's just dive into this. In context, Paul had just been talking about in, in chapter 1 the power that's at work in us. And he says here, starting in verse 1, he says this power, this is what it's able to do. And you, you who are now believers, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's talking about your former life, what you were before your faith in Jesus. We do not become spiritually dead because we sin. We need to understand this. We don't become 
spiritually dead because we mess up. We are born spiritually dead. Man's, mankind's problem isn't the fact that we can't properly connect with our environment, that we can't connect with each other, or with our spouses or whatever. The core issue of mankind's problem is that we cannot connect with our creator God because we were born spiritually dead. This is the reality of every single man, every single woman, boy, and girl, that we are born spiritually dead. If you have a relationship with God through Christ, that's amazing. But what makes it so amazing is that that relationship came while you were still spiritually dead. Uh, if you've been through biology or whatever, you know that one of the signs of death is the lack of being able to respond to stimuli, right? Uh, I was hunting, a if you don't like hunting and whatnot, I apologize for this example, just plug your ears. But um, I was hunting a couple of years ago, and we were, we were squirrel hunting, and we came across just a tree loaded with squirrels, and it was, it was just very simple. Um, it was easy. We go to pick up the squirrels. I'll leave out the details. We go to pick up the squirrels to gather them for, for uh, you know, to do what we do with dead squirrels. And uh, I'll leave that part out too. I'm trying to be, you know, sensitive. Um, but here's the point. I reached down to grab the tail of one of the squirrels put it in the basket. Um, that squirrel was not dead. That squirrel, as soon as I touched its tail, it like life rejuvenates, runs up my arm and just scares the fooey out of me uh, because I was assuming they were dead. Now the dead ones, when I picked them up, they were no response because they were dead. The dead ones were dead. Dead things don't respond to stimuli. So here's the idea here. You and I, as tough as it is to imagine, you and I, in this beautiful picture of the gospel, we were born spiritually dead without the ability to respond to God in any way. And Paul explains the details of this deadness. This is who, if you're in Christ now, great. But this is who you were. This is who I was. He describes it. You were dead in your trespasses. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air around us. That speci specifically, the devil himself. He calls him the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is who you once were. If you are now in Christ, who you once were. You were among whom, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived amongst this, this, this course of the world, the prince of the, the air. And we were driven by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the desires of our mind, which were, of course, wicked. And were by nature, like, didn't have to do anything. It was just the natural reality. We were children of wrath, just like the rest of everyone else, just like the rest of mankind. So here's the reality. Each one of us are born this way. We don't have to do bad to get this. We're born this way. One might say this. Well, you know, I've heard about someone who's terrible like that. You know, I've heard some. I was watching a documentary. As a matter of fact, Mariah and I were watching a documentary the other day on some people who were, um, uh, like, taking... Uh, um, Teenage girls, and they were turning them into sex slaves in Connecticut. Like, how, how does that work? That is just a depraved element that I could never imagine. But we say, well, I know someone, or I've seen that. But here's what Paul is saying. You were that. And if you're not in Christ, you are that. That is who you are. And that's tough for us to internalize. Because we think of us as, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And, -so. and I'll, 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 I'll confess 
that sin has a, a variety of ways of showing itself in terrible, awful ways. But the reality is every single one of us who have ever been born were born far from God, spiritually dead, hopeless. We could try and try and try our best to get to God, but we will fail because we are born spiritually dead. I'm glad he doesn't stop here because that's really bad news. All right, but that's the reality. Sometimes we have to embrace the reality before we can understand the goodness of what God has done for us. So what are we left to do? Where does that leave us? And then we come into verse 4. It says, but God, and I, I love that we can just camp out there for a long time just talking about but God. But God, being rich in mercy, and, and, and I know most of you weren't here for the first couple of of messages in chapter 1 but, but there's so much in chapter 1 on the richness of his mercy the, how he lavishes it upon us but being rich in his mercy because of the great love which, with which he loved us even when we were dead Dead things don't respond to stimuli. Even when we could not respond in ourselves, even when there was not a glimmer of self-righteousness whatsoever, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. As a result of God's unfathomable love, because he is this, he's just filthy rich with the mercy, and mercy is not giving us something that we deserve, because of this, he pours out his grace on us. And grace is giving something that you don't deserve. And he breathes life into us through Christ. Think about it this way. Here's an illustration I came across when I was studying for the message. Imagine you as a parent. And I hope this doesn't happen. But this is kind of graphic, but it, it really hits home of what God has done here. Imagine you're a parent and you have small children like many of us do. Or, or teenage children or whatever. And there's a, a guy who goes to a, a bar or wherever and he gets drunk. And he thinks that he can drive home safely that night for some foolish reason. He gets in his car and because he's intoxicated he doesn't stop at the red light. And you and your family are in the crosswalk crossing and he literally mows over your children. Okay? Uh, unimaginable. Okay? He immediately becomes guilty of probably manslaughter or some sort of, you know, first degree, or probably not first degree, but second degree, some sort of charge. The state convicts him, and he has to pay the state, the judge, the jury. He has to pay for that. And the payment, let's just say 20 years in prison for being guilty of manslaughter. Let's just assume. Do you really think that after 20 years of this man serving his time to pay the state, do you really think that he and you are reconciled to each other? No way. Him paying 20 years in prison is not going to bring forgiveness in your heart towards him. Here's the deal. This guy could beg, steal, and borrow to try to get you to forgive him, try to become reconciled to you. But who is the one that controls the ability to reconcile? You in that scenario. You in that illustration. Now, here's the beauty behind the gospel. Man, we have offended not a, a parent of, of young children. Man, we have offended a holy God infinitely greater than that illustration I just gave you. We have offended an infinite holy God who through his loving mercy, he on his end offers you and me, those who believe, 
reconciliation. He extends his mercy, his love, his grace to those who would believe. Man, that is crazy in my mind. This is a love, a mercy that, that we have no ability to understand or to comprehend. It is, this is, as tough as this is to think, God is the one that has, we have offended. And he offers us this reconciliation. This God that we have offended is, we have offended gravely because of our sin. But because he's so rich in his mercy, because of the great love which with he loves us, he offers reconciliation. He offers life to the dead who would but believe. He offers purpose to those who believe. And this grace, by grace, you have been saved. And what he's saying here is, look, you can't bring this about yourself. This is nothing to do. You are the convicted manslaughterer in that illustration earlier. God in his grace has offers you salvation. There is nothing you could possibly do. Doing good, man, that's good. It's good to do good things. But it takes Jesus in order to be good and to be accepted. And so it goes on into verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated uh, with him in the heavenly places. And there's so much in this we just don't have time to look at. But, but just think about this. However alive Jesus is, that's how alive you are in Christ. When Jesus died, did he die or did he just kind of pass out like some people say he did? If he just kind of passed out, then we don't have resurrection. We don't have life in Christ. But because he died, taking our sins far from us, and because God raised him from the dead, we have been raised together with him. And not only raised with him, but we have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So wherever Jesus is at, we are at positionally in Christ. Now, I know physically we're still here, but positionally we are at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus. Jeff brought up the other day to me, he said, well, man, yes, Christ is in us, but the powerful thing about it is that we are in Christ. And wherever Christ is, the reality of his presence, that's where we are positionally with him forever. But have you ever really wondered why? I mean, this sounds great. This is awesome. But have you ever really wondered why? Why would God do this? Why would God, to the extent, knowing before he even created us, knowing that we would rebel, knowing that we would sin, knowing that we would run from his love, why would he do this? I'm a big why guy. I want to know why. I take things apart just to figure out how they work. Why do I want to pull this? That happens. I'm a why guy. I think verse 7 answers this for us. And it it's a similar answer that we have in chapter 1. He says, so that, okay, here's the reason why. All this, this grace saving you, all this while you were still dead, all this so that in the coming ages, in eternity future, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. So that God can show just how amazing he is. So that God can show just how filthy rich his grace is. So that God can show just how deep and how wide his loving kindness towards those who believe really is. This isn't a God who needs us to complete him. This is a God who is completely perfect in everything. This isn't a 
a God who we're just kind of far away from and we just need to do a little bit of good work to get back to him. This is a God who is absolutely perfect and just and holy and righteous and whose grace and kindness we could never, ever, ever match up to. But it's a grace and a kindness that could never be measured. The storehouse of God's grace is greater than the vastness of the universe itself. And to make sure we understand how this works, he gives us these last few verses. He says, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this, this whole thing of salvation, this whole thing of God bringing you into his family, this is not your own doing. That needs to be read, screamed, and understood clearly. You are dead in your, spiritually when you were born. How can a dead thing become made alive on its own? It's impossible. That, the dead squirrel, we're dead. It's not coming back to life. This work of salvation, this work of being made alive, it's not your doing. It's the gift of God. Man. What a gracious God who knew that we would rebel against him, who knew that we would run from him. But in his infinite mercy, in his immeasurable greatness of love, while we were still dead, he offers those who believe this gift of faith. Here's the crazy part for me. Even this idea of faith is not our own doing. You see, if we are dead, we are dead. But God gives us the gift of faith itself. He knows that we in ourselves, we are so dead that we can't even muster up this little amount of faith to believe in him. So he gives us what we couldn't even put, pull together ourselves. And he gives us the faith that's needed. So think about this. We are so lost, so spiritually dead in our trespasses against God to the extent that we'll never earn our way out of it. And God, in his infinite, abundant grace and his love that's immeasurable, he not only, as we learned in chapter 1, he not only blesses us, he not only chooses us before the foundation of the world, but he adopts us into his family. He makes us righteous. We learn that. He redeems us. He forgives us. He lavishes his grace upon us. He gives us an eternal inheritance. He seals us with his spirit. He makes us alive with Christ. He raises us, as we learn here, together with Christ in the heavenly places. He seals us with the Spirit of God. He seats us with Christ. All of this while we are still spiritually dead. So so he knows that even he has to even give us faith to believe in him. And he does all this, why? To show for the ages to come just how full of grace and kindness he really is. Man, what an amazing God. What a gracious God. What a God to be loved, to be served. What a God to say good things about, which is what it's all started in chapter 1, verse 3. But what about our works? What about our good works? Aren't we supposed to do good things? Doesn't God like it when we do good things? Well, of course, but here's the deal. Doing good, as we've said all morning, is good. 
But no one is good apart from Jesus. And he gives us this last verse to make it really, really simple and clear. For we are his workmanship. We are God's work. We are God's good work. His handiwork, your translation might say. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. These works, these good works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So God created us to do his works. But here's the thing we must understand. No good work can produce salvation. But many good works are produced by salvation. Does that make sense? Does that a, a, a commentator, commentators they say things a lot better than we could ever say them. So I put this quote in here. Before we can do uh, excuse me, before we can do any good work for the Lord, he must first do a good work in us. He must create a, a alive spirit within us before we could ever do any kind of good work for him. So doing good is good. But no one is good without Jesus. And so when we look back at this idea of performance-based acceptance, then how can we apply the truth, this radical truth into our lives? Can you separate this performance-driven world from how we view God and how God views us? Can we stop trying to appease God by tossing some good works his way, hoping that he'll look past our rebellion, looking past our deadness because we put some money in a plate or because we actually paid our taxes this year or whatever kind of good works that we want to throw God's way? Man, it's impossible for us to appease the holy and perfect God. Listen, you could be Mother Teresa herself. And she is an amazing lady, or was. I think she's passed, right? Um, she was an amazing lady. But listen, the good works that Mother Teresa did, that's all she had, that's not good enough. Mother Teresa and anyone is good only because of Jesus and because of the relationship that we have through Jesus. Man, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal this to us today because most of us, a lot of us, struggle with this performance-based acceptance by God. And Paul is making it crystal, absolute crystal clear that we could not, in a million years of doing good, could ever become spiritually alive in ourselves. That's why God looked at us with favor and said, I will give that person life. I will give that person grace. I will give him or her faith to believe, to respond in me. I wish that we could become a church that doesn't do good for our community to seek God's approval of our church. But I want us to be a church that does good work in our community because of what God has done for us. Do you think that the community can see straight through our fake and false motives? I think they can. Don't you think that we can tell it, that they can tell it when we're doing something genuine versus doing something uh, just to do something? Man, I want us to be a church that realizes that I cannot get God to love me any more than he already does. Doing good is good. Man, let's do good things. But you could do good things all day long, and that doesn't make you good. Only becoming alive in Christ will make you good.
Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and just ask that question just of our own heart, of our own life. Do I have a relationship with God based upon my works, upon my behavior, upon a performance-driven and a performance-driven mentality? Or am I in a relationship with God solely because of what he has done? And so here's, here's the reality. I mean, we are dead. We are born dead. And oh, the grace of God that is so amazing. He gives us, he makes us alive in him, giving us the faith that is necessary to believe in him to start with. Father God, as we conclude this morning, I just pray, Father, for your spirit to just resonate the truth of your word in our hearts. That we would see, that we would continue to see the bigness of who you are. And God, I know my past and I know how difficult it was and still is at times for me to believe that you have accepted me regardless because of Jesus. God, that's tough for me still because I'm so driven by performance. So nailed into me, the better I do, the better I'm approved. But God, I am born. I was dead. And oh, by your grace, I have been saved. Even given me the faith to believe. So God, I just pray for our church. God, I pray that as we continue to to lay a foundation, Father, that we would never become a church that teaches nor holds to this idea that we can earn favor with you. That is a smack in your face to say that we could earn our favor. That is a smack at the cross. That's a smack across Jesus' face to say that we could do anything to earn life from this death that we are in. It would say that Jesus' death, his sacrifice was not necessary. Oh God, may we embrace the grace that you have given us. God, the reality of your love, immeasurable, Father. So God, I thank you. We worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.